in the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 3. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 3 from verse 13. I'm going to read it in the Revised Standard Version. Matthew's Gospel chapter 3 from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, <clears throat> Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these will I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now this evening we come again to this first division in the Gospel according to Matthew from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 11 which we have entitled the advent or the coming of the king the advent of God's king and we have dealt already with the genealogy of the king and the birth of the king and the herald of the king. And you will remember last week we ended um, in this uh, uh, subdivision, the herald of the king. We dealt with the preparation for the king that we find in the ministry of John the Baptist and then we dwelt on the objective of Christ's ministry which and work which was described 
by John the Baptist in the title, He Who Baptizes with the Spirit and with Fire. Now this evening we come to the anointing <coughs> of the King. From chapter 3, verse 13 to verse 17. First, from verses 13 to 17, and we have entitled this, The Anointing of the King. The Anointing of the King. Now, why have we called it the Anointing of the King? <coughs> Many commentators call it the baptism, Christ's baptism, or the baptism of the anointed king. But I think myself that we have correctly entitled this passage of scripture the anointing of the king because the most vital and important part of these few verses is the opened heaven and the Holy Spirit coming down and remaining upon him. Now, in fact, we cannot divide Christ's baptism from his anointing. In fact, these two things, his baptism and his anointing, belong together. So we have entitled this the anointing of the king. I think you all know from your Old Testament that every king was anointed. It was the qualification of the king. He was anointed when he was ready, when he was recognized when he finally took the throne when his reign began it began with an anointing he was anointed with oil now this evening we come to this tremendous stepping stone in the bringing in of the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven when the Lord Jesus Christ as God's King was anointed now his baptism is an integral part of his anointing and that's the thing I want to underline and emphasize this evening. So we shall divide this uh, subdivision into two <clears throat> and we shall first consider the baptism of Christ and then we shall consider his actual anointing. Now first his baptism which he described in these words that we might fulfill all righteousness. That we might fulfill all righteousness. Now, Christ's baptism did not uh, signify repentance. I think we've all, if you were here last week in the Bible study, you will know that the baptism of John the Baptist signified, expressed, was a testimony to repentance repentance from sin and it signified a readiness and a preparation for the coming king for the coming messiah now then why was the lord jesus baptized had he any sin to repent of john the baptist uh, recognized this instantly he said to him, why do you come to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized of you. I, who am the one who baptizes with water unto repentance, I need to be baptized of you, not you of me. Here is the problem. Why should the Lord Jesus be baptized? He was without sin. He knew 
no sin. He was not only sinless, he was perfect. Perfectly holy. Perfectly pure. He was incorruptible. Then why should he go down into the waters of baptism, the waters of John's baptism, and be baptized by a sinner? He who was sinless, baptized by a sinful man, in a baptism that signifies repentance from sin and a readiness for the coming of the Messiah. Here is the problem. Why did the Lord Jesus go down into those waters of baptism? Even John recognized that. Why? Well, first of all, obviously, Christ's baptism by John could not signify repentance because he had no sin to repent of. He was not a sinner. The second thing is this, it could not signify readiness for the Messiah since he was himself the Messiah. So we have demolished the only two things we understand by John the Baptist's baptism, John's baptism. What then <coughs> does Christ's baptism mean? Well, it means this. We underline first what it means and then we'll explain why we believe it means this. Christ's baptism signified his committal, his absolute committal of himself to sinful man in his need. In other words, in those waters of baptism, Christ took his place amongst sinful man, though himself without sin. He took himself, he took his place amongst sinful men and committed himself committed himself without ever a look back, committed himself to God's saving purpose. So Christ's baptism is twofold. It was to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, first of all, it was the very righteousness of God that he was fulfilling. Here was God's righteous purpose being outworked. What was God's righteous purpose? The removal of sin. The fulfillment of the law and the bringing in of the salvation of men and women for whom there was no hope outside of God. So the Lord Jesus goes down into those waters of baptism and in those waters he takes his place alongside all those others who were confessing their sin. He had no sin to confess. But he went down into those waters committing himself to sinful man and, and, and sinful woman in their need. And committing himself to God's saving purpose. The only means by which God could save you and me, the death of the cross. Those waters, as indeed in our baptism, did signify a death. They signified a, a turning away from sin, although they did not signify new birth. But when our Lord Jesus went into those waters, he signified, he testified to the fact that he was committing himself publicly, unconditionally, and utterly to the will of God for him, which was nothing less than the death of the cross. 
He knew it when he went into the waters. That he was publicly, as it were, taking his stand. That for him there was no other way than Calvary. So he went down into those waters to be baptized of John. Now, I believe all this is beautifully indicated uh, quite clearly uh, by the phrase, like a dove. Now, that's not in these verses. It is in the next little passage about the anointing of Christ. But if you will turn um, to <coughs> uh, verse 16, we read this. The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Like a dove. Now this word, the Greek word here translated dove, is a common word translated elsewhere in the New Testament by the word pigeon. Pigeon or dove, not turtle dove, that's another word. But this was a dove or a pigeon. That uh, The two um, birds were uh, translated by the same Greek word. Now, if you take your Bible, your New Testament, and look at a few verses, you will find first Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens rent asunder and the Spirit as a dove descending upon him. Then turn on to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3 verse 22, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove upon him. Then if you will turn over to John chapter 1 and verse 32, verse 32, John 1 verse 32, and John bear witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and it abode upon him now all four gospels <coughs> use this little phrase like a dove as a dove and I believe that in this little phrase we have got the key to our understanding or to the meaning of the baptism of Christ because if again you take your Bible, you will find that this creature, the dove, principally symbolized sacrifice. Now we think of a dove always, as I mentioned last week, as something pure, something harmless, something rather shy, something easily frightened away, and that is all true. But what is the principal meaning in the Word of God of this symbol of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you turn to Matthew, back to Matthew, chapter 21 and verse 12, we have the exact same word used. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold the doves. <laughs> the seats of them that sold them. Now why did they sell doves? Did people keep them like budgerigars in those days? Of course not. 
Did they eat them? Of course not. The doves were for the very poor amongst the people of God. The rich could afford a bullock. The rich could afford a lamb. But the poor could only afford a dove, a pigeon. And so there were not only, as it says in another gospel, uh, the cattle that were in the temple there for the richer people, the wealthier people to buy for their sacrifice, but there were flocks of caged doves all there for sale. And every one of them was for sacrifice. So a poor person, when they went into the temple, who couldn't afford anything more, could at least afford a dove. And they bought the dove for the sacrifice. Now you've got it again in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 24. Now here is the Mary and Joseph. It is to, at the circumcision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the Lord of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Two young pigeons, the word is doves. Here you've got it again, the exact word. Now turn back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 1. Third book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 14. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 14. And if his oblation to the Lord be a burnt offering of birds, then he shall offer his oblation of turtle doves or of young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it unto the altar and bring off its head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be drained out on the side of the altar. Verse 17. And he shall rend it by the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Now come back to this uh, this, this phrase that we've got in all four <laughs> Gospels and here in Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 and we read and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove now what is the symbolic meaning of this we've got here the key to his baptism because you see it speaks of the Holy Spirit come, coming to enable Christ to fulfill the work of our salvation. To enable Christ to pay the price with his own life. In other words, when the Holy Spirit came upon Christ and anointed him, it was on the understanding that it was sacrificial service. In other words, the Holy Spirit did not come upon the Lord Jesus Christ that he might have an enjoyable experience that he might just know tremendous power, that he might just be able to perform miracles. Not at all. The meaning of the Holy Spirit anointing the Lord Jesus Christ was this, that he might supremely be enabled to offer himself up on the cross. Is that right or wrong? When you turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, it is precisely what it says. Hebrews 9 verse 14 How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Lord Jesus offered himself up on the cross through the eternal spirit. In other words, so agonizing was that work, so full of suffering, so bound by the very pains of hell, that it was only through the eternal spirit that the Lord Jesus was enabled to fulfill and finish the work of our salvation. My dear friends, have you ever really understood that when the Lord Jesus was baptized, that's what it meant? The moment he came up out of the waters, the Holy Spirit, as a dove, came upon him. And I think it's beautiful that it's a dove. As a dove, in bodily form as a dove. The poorest of us are included in this salvation. The poorest of us are in the Saviour's heart. The poorest of us were in the mind and energy and power of the Holy Spirit that was given and bestowed upon the Lord Jesus Christ on that day. There in the waters of baptism, the Lord Jesus Christ publicly avowed that his life was to be given for the salvation of the world. He publicly committed himself in those waters to sinful men and women and to the purpose of God in our salvation. I could stop and I could say quite a lot about this, but um, suffice it uh, just to say that I think sometimes you and I have got to get our ideas of the anointing all changed. There are people who all the time are, are so spiritually self-centered that they will seek any experience they can to satisfy themselves. And that's why they are permanently miserable. They are frustrated believers. Frustrated believers. And there's nothing in this world so miserable and so soul-destroying as frustrated people. And frustrated believers, well, we all know them, don't we? I suppose we're all frustrated believers or have been at one time or another frustrated believers see? why my dear friend the Holy Spirit didn't come upon the Lord Jesus because he could have something but because in those waters of baptism in that those waters of John's baptism he publicly gave his life away he committed himself lock stock and barrel to the purpose of God he committed himself three and a half years before it happened to the death of the cross. For him, his whole life, his whole ministry, his service and everything was founded and based upon Calvary. Do not think for one single moment that God will ever anoint any one of us unless it be for exactly the same reason. If there is any, any little amount of self-seeking, self-assertiveness, in it, ambition within it, or just self-centeredness within it, 
my dear friend, you'll go on seeking and seeking. You'll just have to live in the energy of your old flesh life until you have got clear on this one thing, that endowment with power is given to those principally. Uh, its meaning is that it should be given to those who have committed themselves to the purpose of God. Well, more about that in a moment. But the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ signifies this, that he now has publicly, as it were, committed himself to God's saving purpose and to man's sinful condition. Then we come to the anointing of Christ in these verses 16 and 17. Now it is interesting that when Christ identified himself with God's heart, when he identified himself with God's purpose and God's saving work through Calvary, God the Father anointed him, not before. It is most expressive that all Gospels say when he came up out of the water. Um, the New English Bible puts it very beautifully in Luke. It says, uh, not in Luke, but in Mark. It says, coming up out of the water, almost the picture of the water falling off of him. Just as he came up out of the water, the heavens opened and the Spirit came down. Luke tells us that he was actually praying when the Holy Spirit came uh, upon him. But what we can underline is this simple fact that it was not before the Lord Jesus was baptized, but only when in those waters he publicly committed himself to God's heart and purpose did the Holy Spirit come upon him. Did the Father anoint him? Now, of course, I think you all realize that the Lord Jesus was born of the Spirit. And he was indwelt by the Spirit. But 30 years after, he was anointed by the Spirit. It is therefore not a wrong thing to seek for the anointing. It is by its very nature a second work. It is something that we go on to. We grow up to. God doesn't mean us to be just living in our own weakness, in the limitation of our own resources. He means us to know something of that anointing. Well, now let us go back to the Lord Jesus himself. He is anointed king for the work of bringing in God's kingdom and reconciling this sinful, fallen, lost world to God, bringing us into the kingdom. This is the thing that Christ is anointed for. Get that clear. That was the objective for which the Holy Spirit came uh, upon the Lord Jesus, that he might be empowered and endued so that he could fulfill this work that God the Father gave him to do. Now, when the Lord Jesus is anointed as God's King, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends and remains upon him, and a voice comes out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I 
I am well pleased. Now, these three things are, are worth our just stopping for a moment and thinking about. The first is this, the heavens open. The heavens open. Christ has been baptized. He is an absolutely selfless man. He has committed himself to the work of the cross three years before he goes to it. Now, for the first time in history, the heavens open. There is a very real sense in which the heavens have never opened since Genesis chapter 3. The last time the heavens were opened was when God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening and talked with Adam and Eve. And we're told in Genesis 3 and at the end of the chapter that when Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, the cherubim were placed there with a sword of flame, a flame of a sword, to bar the way to the tree of life. Heaven was closed. The doors shut with a clang. They were bolted and barred. Heaven was like brass from that moment. Now, for the first time, the heavens open. Why is that? Because God has found the first one on earth in whom there is no sin and who is not only perfect, but has committed himself to God completely. That's the first thing, an opened heaven. The wonderful thing it is to have an open heaven, not to have a kind of uh, a cloud over one's head, uh, a sense of something like brass that's between you and heaven that you can never get through. You're all, your whole Christian life is laboring under a sense that up here there's a great heavy black cloud somehow, a brazen ceiling through which nothing can really penetrate. It's hard work getting a prayer through. You know, you really got to sort of get down the hard work to get anything through that. It's a wonderful thing when there's an open heaven. And you speak to the Father just as if he's there. He is there. It's an open heaven. The, 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 the heavens have opened. And then again, the second thing is the Spirit of God descends. Now, the Spirit of God has descended a number of times. <coughs> You must never forget that, that in the history of the old covenant, the Spirit of God has descended uh, again and again for special work. And furthermore, he's come upon people for special work. You remember, the Spirit of God came upon those who built the tabernacle and did the cunning work, as it says in our authorised version. The Spirit of God came upon some of the prophets for them to do their work. The Spirit of God in the Old Covenant came down upon people for, speci for special works uh, and for a special season. But the thing that struck John the Baptist was this, that the Spirit of God descended and remained. Now in John, the Gospel according to John, this is the thing that is underlined. John says, he said to me, that is God said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit of God descending and remaining is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
The Spirit of God descends and remains. I think if you go back into the Old Testament again, um, you will find, um, in a very wonderful way, this all symbolised. For instance, go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and we find it says in verse 2, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. A wonderful picture, wonderful picture. The Spirit of God hovering, hovering like a bird. Brooding is the word, brooding upon the face of the waters is the picture of a great eagle, a great bird hovering above, above the waters. Why? It's a picture of a bird looking for a foothold. Mark it. Looking for a foothold. Looking around to see something in that void and emptiness and chaos and darkness. Looking for a foothold. Looking for somewhere to alight. Looking for somewhere to abide upon. Nowhere. Nowhere. You've got the same picture in Genesis chapter 8 from verse 8 to 9. If you remember the story of Noah, well then you will remember that he let out a raven. That was a mistake. Because a raven, you will all, I think, know, lives on carrion. It lives on dead flesh. So of course when it found a few dead bodies floating around, it alighted upon them and was perfectly happy. That was, was nothing, there was nothing repulsive um, about dead flesh to a raven. He was perfectly happy, in fact, he was not only happy, uh, he was more than delighted. Because he had his provision for him as well as his home floating there upon the water. All was there, home and food. But the dove is a very different creature. And you remember, Noah took the dove and he let it out and it, and it moved over the waters and it could find no place to rest. Now, if you look at uh, Genesis 8, it is quite uh, interesting because it's a wonderful illustration, really, of what we're talking about. He sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground, but the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him to the ark. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth, and he put forth his hand and took her and brought her uh, unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came into him at eventide, and lo in her mouth an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth the dove and she returned not again unto him any more. Now isn't that interesting what it says about the dove here? It says, <coughs> um, but the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. The same picture you have in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The Holy Spirit brooding upon the face of the waters, upon the chaos, upon the darkness, upon the confusion. Now, when you come to this, this wonderful picture of the Spirit of God descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining upon him, really what we've got is this, that the Spirit of God, for the first time, has found a place to rest. The Spirit of God has found a human being in whom, as God the Spirit, he is not, not only wholly satisfied, but can make his home. That's the picture. And the Lord Jesus Christ is, as it were, the home of God. The home of God. There, in that moment of anointing, it was as if the Spirit of God took up his abode uh, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, that's a wonderful picture. And then the third thing we have, of course, is the divine voice, uh, the voice that came out of heaven. And this voice bear witness to Christ. God is utterly satisfied with Christ, in whom I am well pleased, or I am satisfied, in whom I am well pleased. Uh, to this kind of person, God can commit himself wholly. Now, the anointing is just that, dear child of God. It is the point at which God commits himself. He commits himself, that's all. He commits himself in an outward way. He commits himself to you as one, to me as one who belongs to him, redeemed by him, saved through his grace. Of course, we have to say this, that the anointing of Christ is unique, absolutely unique, in that he was anointed for the work of our salvation. In that sense, he is unique. And the way the Holy Spirit came upon him, in one sense again, is unique. But we can also learn many lessons from it. For the Holy Spirit would also come upon us and would endue us with power and enable us to do the work that God has given us to do. He would not only gift us, but he would endue us with power to exercise the gift that he has given to us, so that together we may build up the church and may serve the Lord in the Spirit and may be enabled, as it were, to go out to this world and preach the gospel through the power of God. Well, all this is vitally necessary. So what do we find really here? Well, I think we have to learn this. If you and I would know the anointing of God, the endowment with power from on high, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, not only initially, but progressively, we too must identify ourselves with Christ, absolutely, his cross, his purpose, his work. God will not endure us with power unless we are prepared to commit ourselves to him unconditionally. Unless we are prepared, in fact, to go the way of the cross, then the Lord will commit himself to us now, as we look back over this point, the anointing of Christ, we have, I think, seen this next great stepping stone in the realization of the kingdom, in the bringing in of the kingdom. It is the anointing of Christ. The first was the birth of Christ. The second is the anointing of Christ. Now, behind this anointing, Thirty years of life lie. Thirty years of the Saviour's life lie hidden behind this anointing. It wasn't a cheap thing. Thirty years of consistent, routine life lived in. Uh, the life, as it were, lived out day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, year after year until 30 years had sped away before he was anointed 
for this service. That's what lies behind it. It's the great, the next, the second great stepping stone in the realization of the kingdom. The king is not only born, he is now anointed, born of God, anointed by God. Now, there are then three things, these three things we can summarize in this way. By his baptism, Christ took responsibility for sinful and helpless man. By the anointing, Christ was empowered and appointed to fulfill God's work. And by the divine voice, Christ was attested God's king forever, qualified to go forward and finish the work God had given him to do. You see, there is a sense in which all of us must know it, that unless we are anointed, we cannot fulfill the work God has given us to do. It is not a matter of our salvation. It is a matter of our work. If God has given you a job to do, if God has given a gift, and every one of us is gifted in one way or another, we cannot actually exercise that gift. We cannot fulfill the work. We cannot finish the course. We cannot fulfill the ministry that's given to us unless we are anointed. And in other words, to put it into um, uh, Luke's words, unless we are endued with power from on high. That's what you and I need in this matter for the work. Well, now, there are, there's the next division, the anointing of the king. Now we come to the last of these subdivisions of the advent of God's king, the testing of the king. The testing of the king. From chapter 4, 1 to 11. From verse 1 to 11. Now the king has been anointed... And God has borne witness to him, declaring his complete satisfaction in him. Now, the king must be tested and proved. And the means for that testing is the devil. No better person. God is going to use the devil to test now his anointed king. God has not only brought his king into the world, he has not only anointed him, now by the spirit that has come upon him, he is led into the great testing. Now God is going to test his anointed king. Will he come through or will he fail? If Christ fails here, everything fails. The whole work of our salvation fails. Satan triumphs. The world becomes doubly here. What's going to happen? Well, now that's the testing of the king. The temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we call it, is therefore one of the great stepping stones to the, to the kingdom. It is the third great stepping stone to the kingdom. The first was the, his birth. The second was his anointing. The third is his testing. Now he moves forward to his 
testing. Now, well, one or two things we ought to say about this passage. First of all, just to clear up some misunderstandings that often exist among Christians about the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, these three temptations recorded here were not the only ones that the Lord Jesus uh, uh, underwent. The Lord Jesus, in fact, um, it is perfectly clear, was tempted on all points. But we have three temptations recorded which represent all the others. Now, if you um, turn to Luke chapter 4 and verse 2, Luke chapter 4, verse 2, we read this. Well, we read verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led in the Spirit in the wilderness during 40 days, being tempted of the devil. Being tempted. Now, the, the Gospel according to Matthew would almost suggest, the way it puts it, um, here in chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. To be tempted by the devil. It would almost suggest that there were only three temptations. But the other Gospels, the way they put it, it would suggest that there were very many more than three temptations. You see, it says here in Luke 4, verse 2, during 40 days, being tempted of the devil. Now, if you turn back to Mark and chapter 1, Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 13, it says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan. Suggests that there were many more than three temptations. Now, going back again to Luke, and uh, chapter 4, Luke 4, and uh, verse 13, we read this. And when the devil had completed every temptation, now that doesn't sound like just three. When the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now this is the way the New English Bible puts it. It says, so having come to the end of all his temptations, the devil departed biding his time. Having come to the end of all his temptations. So now the first thing we must understand about the testing of the king is that it wasn't, he, was, he was not just tested with three temptations. These three temptations are representative of all the temptations that he went through during those days in the wilderness. That's one point we wish to make it we wish to make clear. Nor was it the only time or period of temptation that the king uh, passed through. Some people seem to think that because we call this the temptation of the Lord Jesus, he was fortunate in this sense that this was the only time in his life that he ever knew any temptation. This is absolutely untrue. For again, if you turn to Luke and uh, chapter 4, the portion we've just read, it expressly says in chapter 4 and verse uh, 13, it says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This period of temptation was over until an opportune time. 
the, the New English Bible puts it, biding his time. In other words, the enemy came back again and again and again. There were periods in, of temptation in the life of the Lord Jesus, periods of trial and testing. And you find it if you read through the gospel carefully when the Lord says the Lord Jesus groaned. The Lord Jesus was troubled in his spirit. What do you think it means when you read um, in um, Luke, I think it is again, and um, twen verse 22, chapter 22, Luke 22, verse 43. <coughs> now here the Lord Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I have often wondered whether this was one of the severest points of temptation the Lord ever knew. It is interesting that in the account of the um, temptation, as we call it, in Luke, it says, and angels ministered unto him. And in the account also in Luke of Gethsemane, it says this, and there appeared unto him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. What do you think the temptation was? Well, I think it's contained partly in the very words the Lord prayed. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. That was exactly what the devil tempted him on at the beginning. It was his identification with the purpose of God in the salvation of men and women that was the point of the devil's attack. His sonship, his identification with sinful men and women in their need, his identification with God in his saving purpose. This was what the enemy made the focal point of his onslaught. And at the end, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was back again. Back again. Don't you think there might be an easier way? Don't you think there might just be a possibility that we could circumvent Calvary? Don't you think there might just be, perhaps, uh, perhaps this is rather heavy, perhaps we're being rather sort of dramatic, perhaps uh, all this going through the darkness and anguish of the cross, perhaps it's not really so necessary. Father, if it be possible for this cup to pass from me, that represents temptation in my estimation. Behind those simple words lies a terrible onslaught from hell itself designed to divorce us from the salvation of God. But the Lord Jesus said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And an angel appeared from heaven and strengthened him. The victory was won. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That should get a hallelujah out of your heart. If he hadn't said that, we would have been finished. But an angel appeared from heaven and strengthened him. Now, get it quite clear, really, that this was not the only period, therefore, of temptation in the life of our Lord. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 4... Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 we read this 
For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of, feeling of our infirmities, but one that has been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in time of need. No, we have to say this evening as we consider this that we call the testing of the king, the temptation of the Lord Jesus, that this was not the only period of temptation he knew. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Now, another point which you won't find in your notes, but which I would like to underline this evening, is this, that, and I think it's a thing that we sometimes tend to forget, so severe was this temptation that angels had to appear and minister to. That means that behind this, the whole of hell was gathered. Now, I think I do not have to tell you that the devil is a created being. And therefore, the devil can't be in China and here at the same time. You do all realize that. I doubt very much whether anyone in this room has ever personally encountered the devil himself. If you have ever had that unfortunate uh, occurrence, you would know it. The devil is a person. He is not God. He is not omnipresent. He is not even omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't see everything at once. The way he sees things, he relies upon a vast network of evil spirits and serried ranks. And whilst we don't want to, to, to spend time upon it, I want to say this, that in this temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I... I am quite sure that the whole of hell was marshalled. It was not only the principal, uh, the head of the whole thing, the satanic force and power, but everything else was centred. Because unless they broke down this king, the undoing of Satan was near. Now, another little point I want also to underline is this that the devil did not corner Christ. Many Christians have got an idea that the Lord Jesus, as soon as he went into the waters of baptism, and as soon as the Holy Spirit anointed him, immediately after that, the devil cornered him. Now, this is absolutely false. The devil did not corner the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, by the Spirit, cornered the devil. Now, this is glorious. And we must just make a point here and give a warning that we shouldn't do this. The Lord Jesus was the only one who could corner the devil. We can't. But is it not interesting that it says here, then was he led up of the Spirit to be tempted by the devil? The devil didn't take the initiative. It was the Spirit of God that took the initiative. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, it was the devil who took the initiative. He came in and said, Hath God said? to the woman. But now, here, it is the Spirit of God who takes the initiative. God has found a man after his own heart. God has found the one to whom he can be completely committed. And now he, he leads that one up to face the devil. It was a word that we often use today, a confrontation. It was a glorious confrontation between God's Christ and Satan, a confrontation. 
The trial was centered upon the recent baptism and anointing of Christ. Now, again, this is important. What did the devil put his finger upon? Well, now, here you've got it. He put his finger upon the sonship of Christ. What was the anointing all about? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the devil says, if you are the son of God, and then again, if you are the son of God. In other words, are you sure? <coughs> and he was really trying to get the Lord Jesus to come out against him. So of course I am. I'll show you. All right. Turn these stones into bread. If you are. Now there's nothing like, uh, when there's a self-life in us, there's nothing like an if. <laughs> if. If you can bake a cake. <laughs> if you can play the piano. If you can type a letter. <laughs> if you can think. And suddenly everything in us rises up and says, Of course I can. Of course I can. How dare anyone say, If. They surely see it. I'll show them. If thou art the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, you know, the Lord Jesus could have done that in an instant. In an instant. He could have raised up sons of Abraham from the stones. He could have done much more from the stones. You see, if outside, it was the sonship of the Lord Jesus that the devil made his focal attack on. Now that's one thing, and that was the meaning of his anointing, wasn't it? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the second thing is also here, and that is his identification with sinful men and women in their need. What do you think the devil meant when he said, If thou wilt worship me, I will give to thee, to you, all the kingdoms of the world and the glory thereof. What was he saying? He was just saying to the Lord, You don't need to go to the way of, you don't need to go to the cross. I can give it all to you. Just um, bow down. Just acknowledge me and I'll give you the whole thing. You don't have to go to the cross and beat me there. I will give it to you. You don't need to go through the anguish of Calvary. Just kneel. Just bow the head. And I'll give it all to you. It, what was the focal point of the test? His identification with men in their sin for me, in their sin and need, you and me. If the Lord Jesus had wanted pomp and glory and show and military might and all the rest of it, well, he could have had it. But if he wanted the salvation of lost sinners, the way was not through the devil. The way was through God to the cross. 
And then again, I think another point that um, uh, the devil focused his attack upon was Christ's dependence upon God for the way and the means, the power. In other words, the devil said to him, uh, having shown him all the kingdoms of the world, he said to him, if thou wilt worship me, I will give to you the kingdoms of the world and the glory thereof. In other words, I will show you a way to a king to the kingdom. A shortcut to the kingdom. Because you know what it says in the book of Revelation? When it's when the great shout of hallelujah goes up, it says this that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ forever. Well, what the devil will say was, now there, we don't have to wait for them. I can give it all to you now. The kingdoms of the world I'll give to you. In other words, just depend on me, worship me, I'll do it. I'll give it to you, I'll be the means, I'll be the way. The means is, worship me. That's, that's the way, that's the way through. And the power, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Not God. I'll give it to you. So it was a, a test on the way to the kingdom and the power by which the kingdom could be obtained. The work of God done. The objective, what was the objective of this test? It was to make Christ move independently of God. Oh, dear child of God, don't we all know this in our experience? Make us move independently of God. You see, if, if, oh, the easiest thing in the world said, the devil's attacking me, right, I'll show him. Instead of, the Lord Jesus said, I only do the things which the Father shows me. The works of my Father. Those I do. Or gain that which pleases the Father, that do I. But you see, it could have been the, the, the attack of the enemy was to get him to work out spontaneously from himself. Just come right out. And then when he did that, drive a wedge between him and the Father. Unbelief. Very, very interesting. You know, all our troubles go back to unbelief. I have learnt it bitterly. I used to think when I was younger in the Lord that unbelief was perhaps a, a sort of not such a terrible thing and that we made too much of it. But I have come to see that it is an evil heart of unbelief that lies behind all backsliding, it lies behind all lethargy, it lies behind every static question. You see, I could go on and on and on about this, the evil heart of unbelief, this little doubt that's sown in the mind, is it worth it? So when you don't think it's worth it, you start to compromise and take in a little bit of the world as well. Because you think, just supposing at the end, it's not really true. What a fool I've been. Sort of letting, I could have eaten and drunk and been merry. See, so, so we compromise a little, you see. Evil heart of unbelief. Now, what the enemy tried to do with, with, with the Lord Jesus was to sow unbelief in his heart, sow doubts in his heart, just to, to, to throw some seeds into him. If, if, oh, the devil's ifs. If, have you have never had that? 
a devil comes to you and says, just supposing it might all be hallucination. If it's true, has God said? If. Now, if you will see right the way through these three temptations of the devil that are representative of the others, you find if is there in every one. If thou be the Son of God, the first one. The second one, if thou be the Son of God. And then the third one is uh, like it, but it has an if in a different place. He says, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. There's an if. Different kind of if, but it's an if. All three temptations, if. And then again, I want you to notice the way the devil uses scripture. It may shake some of you to know that the devil uses scripture, but he does. When he comes as a minister of righteousness, an angel of light, people always tell me they can always spot him. There are very few Christians that can. When the devil comes like an angel of light, he is an angel of light. When he comes as a minister of righteousness, he is a minister of righteousness. And very, very few people spot the enemy when he comes in a guise like that. And sometimes he can use scripture. Now listen to the scriptures the devil uses here. Lovely scriptures. He uses, he will give his angels charge of you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you, you strike your foot against a stone. Just like the devil to use dramatic scriptures like that. You see, all to do with something dramatic and sensational. He will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, if you turn to Psalm 91, you will find a most significant omission. A, a most significant omission. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Here is the full quotation. For he will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now the devil left out uh, significantly to keep thee in all thy ways. To keep thee in all thy ways. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Oh, how clever the devil was. Come on, jump off. Jump off this gable of the temple. Jump off this, this pinnacle of the temple. You see, um, dear one, God has said of you, because you're the son, if you are the son of God, he said it of you, and he shall give his angels charge over thee, and they will bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against this the stone. He was very careful not to mention anything about thy ways. The Lord's promise was to keep them in his ways, not if he should jump off a pinnacle of the temple. That was no way of God for him. Huh. Do you understand? Well, all that I think is interesting. And then again, note this, all Christ's answers display complete dependence upon God. Every one of them, every single one of those three answers display absolute dependence upon God. In other words, he tried. Now, as we come to the end of this evening, just let's look at these three tem temptations and sum them up in a few words. The first one, well, here we've got it. Uh, let's read it. 
If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Note it. Now, what does this mean? Well, here it is. Show visible proof that you are the Son of God. In a miracle. Show visible proof in a miracle that you are the Son of God. Oh, an angel of light, a minister of righteousness. Many of us would have succumbed. Show a visible proof that you are joined to the Lord with a miracle. Show a visible proof in a miracle that you are seated in heavenly places. Come on, come on. Come out, come out, come out. Angel of light, minister of righteousness, and when you've come out, I'll pinch you. I'll destroy you. Because you have left your dependent on God. God can work a million miracles. But the Lord Jesus, listen to him. Listen to his words. He says, but he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, Christ's answer was this, sonship consists not in signs, but in a relationship, in dependence and in obedience. I don't have to show a sign. If God wants me to, I'll do it. But I live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let the Lord say, do it, and I'll do it. But don't you tell me I'm not the son of God. <coughs> because sonship consists in a relationship. I am the son of the Father. Do you understand? Yeah. Don't have to come out. See, there's the cleverness of the devil. You see, you get the idea, oh, if we don't show a miracle now, we're not, to, we're, well, now we're powerless, we're weak, we're lost, we're naked. It's absolute nonsense. Sonship consists in a relationship, in dependence upon God. Yes. And obedience. And then the second temptation you've got here is um, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels charge over thee, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The second temptation is prove that the Father is reliable and able. Now this is a much more subtle temptation than the first. You see, the second one was, listen, are you sure your Father is reliable? If you are the Son of God, he'll take care of you, won't he? If you are the Son of God, he will show his power over you and for you, won't he? Right. Jump down from the temple and if you are God's son, he will show he is faithful and won't let you be killed and will display his power and bear you up. Hasn't he said it in the word? He shall give his angels charge over thee and they shall bear thee up lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now note the Lord's answer to this. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, faith 
never tempts God. Oh, how some Christians need to learn, how we all need to learn that. Faith doesn't tempt God. You don't have to do something extraordinary to prove that God is reliable. You can't just be presumptuous and shoot out and say, now then, uh, I'm God's child, he'll back me in this. I've got his word. You can't, you can't tempt the Lord. In other words, you can only do what the Lord tells you to do. God provides for what he commands. If he commands you to do something, he will provide for it. And what God says he will do, he will do. And the third temptation, here we've got it. All these I will give you. Uh, well, we'd better read from verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What is this? Well, here we are. Here's the third temptation. Obtain the world and the kingdom without the cross for yourself, not the Father, through me, not him. Let me put it again. Obtain the world and the kingdom for, without the cross for yourself, not the Father, by me, Satan, not him. And Christ's answer, Christ's answer is then said, then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Um, in other words, Christ's answer was this, No, there is no other alternative to be considered even but God's way and God's will and God's glory. Now, when we come to the end of this evening, I, I must say I love the way that um, Rotherham, in his version, translates the little word, get thee hence, in verse um, 10. M Matthew 4, verse 10. The Lord Jesus said, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now listen to the way that Rotherham um, translates this, J.B. Rotherham. He puts it like this. Then, I'm sorry, first, uh, that's right, chapter 4, verse 10. Then says Jesus unto him, withdraw, Satan. Isn't that wonderful? Withdraw. I that's marvellous. Not get thee hence, but withdraw. The confrontation is over. Now a confrontation is to see who's toughest. See, who's going to, who, which side's going to win, see? Are both going to stand up to each other, or are they going to fall back? Is one side going to fall back? You remember Khrushchev and Kennedy over Cuba. Confrontation. Who's going to show themselves strong? Who's going to fall back? Was it going to be war? Collision? Clash? Here you've got the confrontation, and who falls back? Withdraw, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only <coughs> shall you serve. The actual word is very interesting, the little word here, translated in our versions, get thee hence, or as um, uh, J.D. Phillips puts it, get away. It means simply... <coughs> Go away or go under. Isn't that wonderful? Go under. Withdraw. Vine says it means withdraw. Go under. Withdraw. 
Well, now, there we've come to the end. In this great battle, the devil with the devil, Christ, God's anointed king, has triumphed over Satan. And Satan has had to withdraw. Now, it is interesting that in the very next verse it says, Then the devil leaveth him. He's gone. Until a more opportune time. Now, Christ utterly defeated Satan in this initial onslaught and by so doing opened the way for the proclamation of the kingdom. Now when we go on with these studies we shall go on with the next great division the proclamation of the kingdom. But unless the Lord Jesus had not only been born but anointed and tested and triumphed in the test there could be no proclamation of the kingdom. But the Lord Jesus was not only anointed, but in the testing he triumphed. And now he goes forward to the proclamation of the kingdom. God's king was not only born, not only baptized, not only anointed, not only attested by God. He was proved by the devil himself to be worthy of the kingdom and capable capable of bearing away the sin of the world that's the meaning of the testing the Lord Jesus it has been proved was not only worthy of the kingdom of the throne of God but he was capable being without sin perfect triumphant in testing capable of bearing away our sin. Shall we pray? <coughs> now Lord Jesus we do just lift our hearts to thee and we pray together in thy name that thou wouldst thyself reveal these things to us and make them live in our hearts. Oh how we need to know thy word. How we need to know, Lord, in our own experience, something of that anointing. Oh, that, Lord, by thy Spirit thou wouldst so lead us, that we might indeed know that glorious anointing of thy Holy Spirit, that endowment with power. We may be equipped and endued for the service of the Lord. We pray, beloved, we thank thee, beloved Father, for the way in which our Lord Jesus Christ triumphed in his testing and open the way for Calvary oh we just worship thee and we thank thee and pray that Lord thou wouldst take from thy word this evening and write it on our hearts and we ask it in thy name Amen, Amen.